Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of C&G Partners, Design for Culture. Today, I'm joined by Claire Brown. Claire, welcome to the show. Hi, Jonathan. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. All right. Me too. So to get started, for those who don't know you like I know you, could you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? Sure. I am currently titled creative director at a company called uh, GNA, formerly Gallagher and Associates. But I have a long background in a bunch of different things, as many of us museum folks do. I started with a degree in cultural anthropology, and that's primarily because I grew up living in, in Africa and Asia and really wanted to continue to connect to the world globally and was really interested primarily in people and understanding people, understanding behavior, social dynamics, pretty close to psychology, but grounded more in anthropology. And that degree paired with a lot of hands-on work in the theater, where I was a theater tenant for many years, came together into museum practice. And in working in museums, I started, the first avenue I had was actually a lot of hands-on work. So I was able to use my theater background, my ability to use power tools <laughs> to make things. And so that led me into museum work, but into design. And while I had originally thought I might be more on a curatorial path or an audience engagement path. All of my hands-on work led me to think about the things that we build and the experiences that we make and how do we make those to be the most effective, compelling, relevant experiences for the people who experience them. So I did a lot of work at Smithsonian. I ran a graduate degree program for a while teaching exhibition design, and I now work as creative director. The one thing I'll say is that I do think the title of creative director perhaps speaks to something different than what I see myself doing, which I see myself really as a person who takes care of creative and creativity and a person who tries to build boundaries and safety around keeping creativity whole and alive and vibrant. And so for the teams that I work with, I think a lot about how to enable them to be their most creative selves, how to bring people together to really maximize and amplify creativity that's in everybody and to break down barriers that might inhibit creativity. So I do creative direct, but really more, I think I creative support or caretake, if that makes sense. So you're not a, you're not a creative, you're not a creative director, you're a creativity caretaker. Yes, I think that's the Yes, I like that. All right. And you are, um, that's a great intro, anthropology, and being from the stage, I I think if we were to, if someone were to say, how do we ensure a constant influx of talented and innovative people into this field, the answer might be, well, just make sure that you post things about this field on the bulletin boards of anthropology departments and backstage at some theaters that are near museums, and you'll get a good number of people who know something about people, are curious, and know how to use power tools. But you're, you're doing something else now. You've done, as if you haven't done enough things already from your bio, but uh, say a little bit more about what you're doing now, because we're going to get into something 
mm-hmm. a thing that you're studying, a thing that you're inventing, a thing that you're creating, bringing to the world. So what is the what is that program that you're doing at the same time as being a creativity protector? Protector, yes. <laughs> I think I need a little uh, cape for that. You do. Um, <laughs> so the thing I'm doing on top of everything else and on top of roller skating, for instance, is another thing I do. But I'm also working on a PhD. And I... I've been working on this PhD since I was working as an academic, leading a degree program at the Corcoran College of Art and Design, now the Corcoran School of Art and Design, GW. And at that time, I was really invested in thinking about our practice as exhibition and experience designers, thinking about how to translate that into curriculum, into a pedagogy, and I began thinking about it in a lot of different ways than I think I had been practicing it back in the museum field. And something about being in the structure of the classroom also gave me new ways of thinking about it. And at the time, there was no career path for me because I technically don't have a terminal degree. Although I have a master's degree, I did not have an MFA. And that would have been a terminal degree or a PhD. And at the time, I said, I want to keep teaching forever. So I better get a PhD. Oh, I see. The terminal degree that you would, that sounds so ominous. Uh, terminals. May I never have a terminal degree unless I plan to design airports. The terminal degree that you thought you were lacking or that you were lacking was the one that would have qualified you to advance in academia. Correct. The thing that you do for a living now, degrees be damned. You can be <laughs> power tools, stage manager, rock on, join our clan and run it. But it's in academia that they have those requirements, right? That is correct. Yeah. And it's a funny thing because especially as a person or any of us who come from professional practice, we think of experience as the qualifier to continue to move on. But academia is different. And at that time, I was really settled on a path in academia. And so I decided that getting the PhD would be a really nice way to to further my thinking and to add some rigor to it. And so the PhD that I'm working on is located at Central St. Martin's, which is part of University of the Arts London. And it is a research degree, which is different from how it works in the United States, but it allows me as a researcher to continue to work. And I use my work as part of the research to a certain extent. There is a form of research that is called reflective practitioner, and that's a whole other podcast. But just quickly, I'll say, as a reflective practitioner, which is a term coined by this fellow named Donald Shun, it basically looks at the fact that professionals are critically and intellectually and analytically thinking about the work we do, and we're folding in practice into the evolution of our own work. And so as a reflective practitioner, we think about our work and we write about it as research. So that's what I see myself as. Oh, that's great. Can I, am I allowed to join you in the category of reflective practitioner? I would say that your podcast is the perfect example of Yeah. One of the reasons this is total side note, we'll get right back to the main, the main thing here in right after this, right away. But one of the reasons that I'm doing the podcast, and I also have a, a very short weekly newsletter as well, is to practice the independent uh, creation and promulgation of area-specific knowledge outside the boundaries of traditional academia. 
In other words, to be a, yeah. a non-academic expert and engage, try to engage other people in critique, critical dialogue, words about what you do that can mm -hmm. be recorded and studied and cited by others, et cetera. So anyway, at the end, I'm just a podcaster and I write some emails, but I like the word ref reflective practitioner. Most of what I do is be a practitioner. I think all of this is reflection. And I think what you're doing and what I'm hoping to do as well is to further our field. And the PhD is defined by creating new knowledge. And so I've been, and I think that's something that you're working on very much as well with the podcast and all your other work, but finding ways to critically explore our practices. I think just, I just listened to your podcast with Dory Tunstall. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that critical perspective on design or that critical perspective on the work that we do is the only way that we're going to move our fields forward. Right. Um, new knowledge. New knowledge. new knowledge. That's exactly right. Yeah. I try to write new knowledge every week, at least new to other people, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, in this podcast is a platform for people like y'all who yeah. are creating your own new knowledge to get that word out there. Speaking of which, let's get that word out there. So uh, today our theme is your theme. We are, drumroll, introducing rapid experience design with Claire Brown, someday to be Dr. Claire Brown. And so we have, as usual, there's a list that people can take away. And I know the list, but not much more. And my guest has got the rest. And we have six points today. So the first one under introducing rapid experience design, point number one, the usual approach to exhibition design, the waterfall approach, so-called waterfall approach, isn't the only way. And uh, this subject, rapid experience design, is what you were writing your PhD dissertation on. Tell us, tell the listener, tell me a little bit about what you mean there. What is the waterfall way? Why is it not the only way? And, and where are we going with rapid experience design? Yeah, I think that's, I think this is a great starting point to dig into this. I'll just describe quickly what waterfall is. And for those of you who make exhibitions, you may see this happening in your work. So waterfalling is a term that refers to a design development process that is highly linear. And it starts with an identification of the thing you're going to make a and a definition of that thing. And then you move through a series of phases of implementation until you build that thing at the end. And then there's evaluation either after or very close to the end of it. So in exhibitions, at least in the 25 plus years of practice that I've been doing, I have seen that more often than not, exhibition ideas happen. You move through a series of stages to develop that idea into an exhibition. And you really don't do a lot of testing until the exhibition is built. And in the case of some of the places that I have worked, we're talking multi-millions of dollars going into the fabrication budgets and development budgets of these permanent or semi-permanent exhibitions. But we don't know if it's going to work until the thing is built. And this is, this was identified back in the fifties and earlier by folks who worked for the Department of Defense, by software developers, early computer technologists. 
thinking about the Im- immense amount of dollars and um, high stakes that go into certain projects, especially for, like defense project, if you cannot predict some form of the outcome in advance, you have increased the risk of the project. And so waterfall still continues. It really is most mostly seen right now close to us in architecture. Architecture uses waterfall for a lot of good reasons because it's a very clear path towards building the thing. If the goal is to build something and that's where you see the end goal, waterfall gets you there efficiently. If the goal is to build something that you have never built before and you don't know if it's going to succeed, waterfall might not be the best path towards it. And I think when we create exhibitions, we hope often to create something new or we hope to create a new kind of experience or tell a new kind of story to engage a new kind of audience. And so that unpredictability of all those factors means that waterfall might not be our best process doing it. Got it. So for the listener, I want to come back around and just to f- say a little bit more about waterfall, which is the thing that... Claire, that you're talking about being different from. So that's just one thing I just want people to know. If you are, if you have been in the business, you may be familiar with this thing called a Gantt chart, G-N-T-T. Yes. This is a, a visual way of describing uh, a project, and it, it has rows and columns, but each one of the phases is in a project. The first step, the second step, the third step, et cetera, is labeled in a stack on the left. And then over on the right, there's a sort of open field and each one of those rows has a color bar that indicates when it starts in time and when it ends. And in the water, it's called waterfall because each one of those bars comes after the other one, comes after the one before it, and one line lower. Claire was just saying, we define what the thing is that we're going to build, and it takes us a couple of months to define that. So we, we say definition phase, and then we have a couple of months of color bar. And then the next thing after that is engineering phase. We're going to draw what that thing is we've just defined. So we say engineering phase. That engineering phase happens after that first phase, and it takes a little while. And you end up with this something that looks like a, a shallow waterfall, sometimes a steep waterfall, where it's a series well, of stones. Stepping stone. Yeah. Yeah, like flat stones. And the idea is that the, the water could pour from one to the other then to the next, then to the next, in an organized way. And that's why we call it waterfall, because it looks like a waterfall seen from the side. No, no water is involved. Although I guess you could use waterfall in order to design waterfalls. <laughs> that would be a waterfall. <laughs> that will not be another podcast. Anyway, the, I think, Claire, what you're saying is that, that your method is something different from that, and we'll get into that. So that's going to be a different kind of a form or something you maybe even can't describe that way, but that's what waterfall is. And I think what you're saying is already making a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense to me. So uh, let's just jump into point number two. Uh, your point number two, which I'm very curious about, we can combine approaches from outside the exhibition world to make something new, make a new process. Right. What are some of those inspirations? What's the process that we're making? Because you made a good you made a good case that we need to look at some other ways to make things. Yeah, as I was reflecting on uh, when I became a professor and was reflecting on the work that we had been doing professionally and needed to communicate that to new students of design of exhibition design, 
I began to see that a lot of the world from which these younger people were coming um, didn't align well, actually, to the waterfall method, because at that time, this is in the early 2000s, the um, all kinds of new software fields of study, uh, digital fields of study were rising up. So we were developing programs in UX design. Uh, we were developing programs in interaction design. All This is all adjacent to the exhibition design program. And what we could see is that other fields were doing creative product development work much cooler, much more efficient, much more creative way. And in a way that responds better to the unknowns of a project, responds better to ongoing change within a project. And those are factors that are very clearly part of developing exhibitions, dealing with unknowns, dealing with change throughout the process. And I was, I began to see at that time that as I was teaching this, it probably made sense for me to fold some of these other methods into it. So it became a little bit of an experiment in the classroom to teach exhibition design, but to teach it in a slightly different way than I had even been doing it before. So to get to some of those things that I uh, was pulling in, um, I already mentioned UX design. You Just software development and design in general grows out of a, a process called Agile. So agile methodology is a way of developing software or digital products that is highly circular, whereas waterfall is linear, agile is circular. And what that means is it allows an idea to be, I'm drawing with my fingers a circle in the air. <laughs> For those of you who can't see me, <laughs> you start with your idea or the intention behind the, the thing you want to create. You begin to develop it. You test it along the way. You fold feedback around that idea into, into the next stage of development. You test it again. You fold feedback back in. And essentially, you come around full circle back to the original idea. However, here's the key. You don't do that once. The waterfall takes one idea, runs it through that linear process. Agile allows you to do that little circle or a big circle of idea, test it, feedback, repeat it, rinse and repeat for, let's say, 10 versions of the concept of the idea up front so that you end up with essentially, I'm just going to use 10 as the number, 10 well-rounded understandings of what this thing could be before you move to the next phase of work. And so that right there opened up huge things for me because I thought, okay, that's great because that means you have a sense of more than one concept of how it's going to work. You've begun to test it either with actual users or visitors or hypothetical testing like through personas. I can talk more about that later. And you are, you then know you have the whole slate of options that you know are good, possibly could work, might work, won't work. And you now have a better chance of knowing that you're going to create something that out of that pool, something that will work. And in exhibition design, there is a point at which 
you might shift over to a waterfall method. And that's really just once you have gone through some rapid iteration and testing up front, and then you might need to break apart into our disciplines, content, et cetera, fabrication, design. And then we might waterfall it in order to just get the production documentation done. But rapid experience design, which is the thing that I'm working on, draws from agile in that sense of rapidly iterating lots of ideas, big concepts, little concepts, wild cards, safe bets, all at once before we make a decision to move down a path. And then the idea with rapid experience design is that it also folds that um, feedback and testing throughout all phases of work. So Agile was a big influence on, on this new model of work that I'm working on. But there's a couple other things that fold into it as well. Around the same time, service design is another discipline that was being developed. Service design takes another very holistic approach at looking at the end-to-end experience of a service. That service could be booking a hotel room, going on a vacation. So it looks at pre-experience that might be going on the website, finding the hotel, booking your room, the during experience, which is like when you're there, and then the post experience, which is what is the follow-up. How does that experience lead to yet another one, for instance? And when I think about exhibitions, it's very easy to think of exhibitions or museum design as a service in that sense, that there's a pre-experience, during experience, and post-experience. So I began folding some of service design principles into this as well. And then the last part that I actually didn't talk to you about earlier, but I think this is key, is that in order to do this work well, you have to be able to have some of these mindsets of designers, this sort of comfort with ambiguity, the willingness to have your ideas fall apart and then figure out what actually works. That's very much of a designer's type of mindset. But we work with historians. We work with other subject specialists, scientists. We work with um, all kinds of people who are providing content or managing collections or directors of museums. And they don't all share that designerly mindset. And so in order to make this work, I started looking at models of collaboration that allow for people to overcome some of the barriers that happen when multiple people come together from different angles. And one of those that makes me excited is adventure education, which adventure education is outward bound for people who do, do ropes courses or mountain climbing, rock climbing, things like that. And there are, there's a whole lot of theory in there around how you get somebody to cross a fear threshold in a productive way so that they continue to learn. They continue to experience and learn and stay open instead of shutting down into a fear moment. And if we have another opportunity to talk, I might fill up more of that part in. That's how, if we do, we will have to do that podcast from on top of a zip line or something <laughs> like that. Uh, I'm game. Let's do it. Sign me up. I just get, get my, have microphone, we'll travel. So yeah, service design, just for listeners, we do a little jargon watch on the show from time to time. Service design, if you want to think about what that is, it's easy. Product designers design products, which are tangible things that somebody uses or uses to defibrillate someone or picks up in order to brush your teeth with it or whatever it might be. Service design creates a more something intangible. It creates an experience that people have the check-in process at a hotel or 
the process at a hospital for a patient to be able to find the department where they where they need treatment and who they interact with, who will guide them along the way, and what kind of items they need in order to get there. So it's basically designing a service. And, and because service design is dealing with these intangibles, it started from the idea that it's from the very beginning to the very end. And it has been influential in other design fields that way. Because it's, because it's intangible, it has to deal with everything. And so all the other design fields said to themselves, oh, wait a minute. I think we've forgotten everything right before what we make and right after what we make. So very influential. Adventure education, I hadn't heard of that as a topic. So there's a lot of news you can use in this podcast already. <laughs> I could ask you a lot more about what you just said, but I'd rather ask you about point three. I, I'm especially interested in, because of what I do for a living, I do the same thing you do for a living, planning and designing exhibitions and experiences. So point number three is focus on creating experiences first, spatial arrangements later. <laughs> this is very interesting. So you're, there are two people in this conversation right now. One of them was trained as a cultural uh, anthropologist, or anthropologist, I should say, and also in the theater, and apparently also some roller skating. But the other person in this conversation, me, I was trained as an architect and a graphic designer and also in theater. So I always think in spatial arrangements, maybe I shouldn't. Say more about this. How should I change my whole way of doing things? Ah, <laughs> uh, thank you. I first of all, I think we both would do really well at IKEA. I think that spatial arrangements is something that is in our wheelhouse and we can do great. And we do. But I think one of the things around exhibition design is that it is only relatively recently that folks working in exhibition design have thought of them as experiences. And it's an important distinction between what an exhibition is, which is, I think, historically a form of display, and then later a form of education. And now I think exhibitions are a form of experience. Isn't it? it's, I think it's important to consider what those words mean in the practice of developing them. And so if you are to consider the thing you're making an experience, then you automatically need to look at it through the lens of the experiencer, whether we want to call that a music visitor, the audience, user, participant, co-collaborator. You need to put the person's experience at the center of the work as opposed to an exhibition that might be otherwise considered display or education. Display is going to put the spatial arrangement and the mode of display at the center of the work. Education is going to put the key messages, the content messaging at the center of the work. And we, I think the museum field has done a great job at thinking about display. I think it's done a great job at thinking about education. And I think the next, the current frontier, it's not actually frontier. I think the current work that we're doing is experience. And it's really about connecting to what what forms of experience allow that educational component, but also what forms of experience create the uh, desires for change, open people up to new perspectives, allow people to see the world through different lens, all these sort of like higher, high, highfalutin things that we try to do as museum and exhibition designers. So we want to focus on the experience first and spatial arrangements later. 
rapid experience design folds in, as I said before, principles of service design, principles of UX design, which is user experience design. And there are methods in those fields that are very useful to experience designers for museums. One of which is, is working with, working to develop and understand what a visitor journey might be. One, is, and that folds in the emotional journey, the cognitive journey, the social journey that visitors might have. As I mentioned before, service design looks before and after the experience. And that's to me very important because I'm really interested in what is the long-term outcomes of the work that we do. I like to think of the work that we create as the so seeds of memory and seeds of change. In, and I think about the fact that I hope the experiences I create are ones that live in folks' memory throughout their life and are things that they can refer back to when they speak to others, whether they're like their grandchildren or friends that they know to, to spread deeper understanding of the world around you long-term. So I'm looking for long-term impacts. For me, service design is a great way to think about how do we plan for something well after the experience is over. We also, in rapid experience design, I, I bring in a bunch of different exercises. There's some that many educators and museum exhibit developers know, things like asking the client and stakeholders and community members and design team, what do we want the experience to, or what do we want visitors to think, feel, and do in the exhibit, before the exhibit, and after the exhibit. That simple exercise brings people who are developing the exhibit immediately away from the stuff of the exhibit and focuses on the experience. So this is putting experience first, spatial arrangements later. Um, It's not to say that spatial arrangement isn't important. Spatial arrangement can be an offshoot of understanding what experience we want to create or need to create. So when you say put experience first, are you talking about the way you just described it? It's fairly general. What do we want our visitors to think, feel, and do before, during, and after the thing that we're going to have them go through? Is When you say experience in this sense, are you just talking about generally what the experience is like at the broadest scale? Or does that drill down also to what is the specific experience going to be? Let's say we're designing a, or planning a, you and I are designing or planning some real big exhibition and there's a series of moments or beats in the experience and it's somewhat linear. And the first thing we'd like people to do is understand what water is. How does water behave? Is it a particle or is it a wave? And we want people to understand that. And, and the first experience, we want to have them be just understand that. And there are many ways you could do that. It could be a big spatial arrangement. It could be a small spatial arrangement. It could be no spatial arrangement at all. It could be something we ask people to have already done before they arrive. Am I getting at the right kind of thing that this can be at the large scale and the small scale, but almost in in your, in the method that you are advocating here, you have to think without being handcuffed by thinking about space first. Is that a way of saying it? I think that's accurate. I think I, I don't think I coined this, but I love to use this phrase. Uh, people talk about the, the tyranny of the floor plan. I, I love that phrase because I do think that any of us who have had any classical training in 
design documentation, whether it's architecture or product design, we default to looking at where things are in space. And sometimes that can miss the point or it can overshadow the thinking about the overall experience and those experiential moments within. And I try very hard with our teams to delay the process of doing the floor plan. It's not that we're not going to do it, but I like to stretch that period of time before we get to actually drawing the floor plan because it allows us a chance to talk and think and sketch more about the intended experience before we lock things into place physically in the space. And I think it also allows us to move away from predetermined notions that an exhibit has to be an exhibit formally. I think if we're hoping to look, hoping to achieve a certain kind of experience or offer a certain kind of experience, we may settle on the fact that actually the thing we want to create is, is more like a walk in the woods as opposed to walking into a building. We identify first, or this is something that you would happen upon in a, in an urban environment. And this is actually a city bus takeover as opposed to the something that fits into the gallery we've been assigned to. And I just like the idea of being able to stretch and maximize those early stages of work before we've landed firmly on the floor plan version. Right, which is one reason you need a new process, because that floor plan is typically one of the first things that the planning and design team is expected to cough up exactly. so that other people can get as specific about it as possible and start estimating it and so on. Exactly. All right. I'm going to do a quick station identification and we'll, we'll get back uh, right away to Clara Brown, who is working on her PhD dissertation right in front of us. If you're just joining, you're listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of C&G Partners Design for Culture. If you find the show valuable, please help spread the word. You can rate the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can write a review in Apple Podcasts, or you can just tell a friend to go check out makingthemuseum.com for everything about this podcast and the newsletter. Now we are going to go back to the show. Today we are talking with Claire Brown about introducing rapid experience design. And we were just talking about walks in the woods and taking over city buses and handcuffs and tyranny. But we're going to get next to point number four out of six. We've got three more to go. And point number four is fascinating to the ever-present project manager in me, which is this new approach can de-risk a project. That's a kind of a new word, de-risk. Take the risk out of a project. You started to talk about that earlier in your introduction to this introduction. How does your new, your proposed approach of rapid experience design de-risk a project? Yeah, so risk is present in so many ways in the work that we do. And so when, let me just pull apart risk as a thing for just a second. I want to think about risk in relation to experience also. And so there's two different things that I look at here. When we think about experience, 
we're designing experiences. We're thinking about the visitor experience. We're thinking about creating a lasting experience in memory, for instance. But we have to also turn the mirror or put a mirror to that and consider the experience of the people making, the people doing the work of creating the experience. So at a point in time, I was going to title my PhD thesis, Redesigning the Experience of Experience Design. Maybe that'll be the title of my book if I ever write something. But I like the other one you already have. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, the other way, it's just going to turn into a Monty Python sketch at some point. Exactly. It just folds in on itself endlessly. <laughs> That's right. The, the sequel to the experience of experience is, of course, the experience of experience. Anyway, sorry, I'm totally butting in on your points, no. which are great. Please continue. Yeah, it's great. But the reason I bring that up about the experience of doing the work is that in order for me to think about risk generally on a project, I think one of the categories of risk is also the risk that participants feel in, pra- in participating in exhibition development and design. So my first point about this new approach can de-risk the project is that rapid experience design offers a model to reduce emotional risk to those people who are working on the project. And I didn't, I haven't gotten into this a lot yet, but the short version is in order for us to create great experiences for others, we can't go into it in a combative situation, in a situation where we feel fearful, in a situation where insecurities are high. And I will say that it is not uncommon that exhibition development teams feel a lot of tension within their team. And that is something that to me, there is a mirror between the tensions felt within exhibition teams and then the thing that we create on the other side. And sort of rapid experience design, as I'm writing about it now, involves a lot of work up front to develop a productive team relationship. And I believe strongly that the agile process, if done right, can create a really exciting collaborative dynamic environment within which that creativity can blossom. There's a lot more to be said on that, but, but that's one aspect of de-risking a project. But then for the project itself, the thing we're making itself, the ongoing testing and validation of the ideas throughout every phase is one way to de-risk the outcome earlier, whether something has a, the possibility of success or failure before you get to the end. It also, if your testing and validation includes community and stakeholder engagement, which it should, that's one aspect of testing, then you already have audience, participant, and stakeholder buy-in as you're moving forward. If you include your client in that validation and testing process, you know that by the end, the client will understand they will have buy-in by the time you present the final piece, final thing that you're making. It's really important also in this process to, because it is circular, to include intentional and planned moments of evaluation of how things are going. That's a strong principle of agile, which is that you, you have a moment of pause where you do, you look back and you look forward. How are we doing? Are we still on track? Have the conditions changed? If the conditions have changed, what do we need to do to fold those new conditions in? If we're not on track, what do we need to do to get on track? 
And having that intentional moment as part of this circular process helps to de-risk the project because you, it's not a um, too big to fail situation. It's not a um, stay the course situation. It is really a let's allow the fluidity of a natural project like this to, to help us along the way to get to where we need to be at the end. That change is invited into that. Um, so you allow that reflection on possible change. So those are some of the ways in which de-risking can happen. Right. So depending on, for our dear listener, depending on where you're coming from, you might be coming from multiple identities. But for those who are on the team, this process might make it easier to be on the team. And for those who are responsible for turning something over on time and on budget, this might be a way to do that. I think anybody who's listening to this show will find it mighty appealing some way that you, or should find it mighty appealing, some way that you can build in a something throughout the process of a project that, that makes the outcome of the project more certain to be successful, mm-hmm. better able to avoid failure, etc. I don't know, you. now that I know what it means, you had me at de-risk. <laughs> Print the t-shirt. So point number five, though, you were talking about this before, your fifth point, was that the process was inspired by teaching fast courses. You taught at the Corcoran, you led a group at the Corcoran, and from your description, your students were coming into this bright-eyed, wide-eyed, what's going on here? And they weren't necessarily coming in at all fettered by any knowledge of waterfall or anything. And it sounds like maybe they were more coming from a school that had Agile in it anyway, and maybe it was just easier and more natural to teach them in that direction. But say a little bit more about why it is that teaching fast courses in the green room, before the show, we were talking that these courses you would teach would be like 20-week courses or something. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't spend 19 weeks trying to explain what an agile process project methodology is. How did teaching fast courses start getting this thing percolating? Yeah. There's nothing like a deadline to create, to spur new knowledge. I'll tell you that. <laughs> so having at the Corcoran, uh, we were teaching exhibition design students who had 15 week semesters and in a thesis, which is the second year of the war, those students had two semesters, but there was a lot of fault or all that would happen in those 30 weeks. So it really came down to about 20 weeks for a student to have your idea for your thesis project, which According to the established curriculum that we needed to uphold, meant that they were developing and designing their own exhibition around their own topic. And that's something that later on I was able to dismantle a little to be a little bit more flexible. But at the time I started doing this, that's what we had to do. And we, what was happening, and, and this is a natural course of things, and I have seen it in the museum side of the profession as well. The focus on the story was the starting point. And that is important. The, every exhibition really needs to understand what a story, what the story is. The historical narrative or the cultural narrative or the narrative in general needs to be prominent. But our students were taking upwards of seven to 10 weeks to develop their content, as we call it, before they were even embarking on a design process. And I, needed to find a way to get them to circle 
that content development into a design effort and to very quickly begin to generate ideation around what these experiences or exhibitions were, what they look like, what they feel like, what the kinds of storytelling is, what's the materiality, what would happen if a visitor came in a group, what would happen if a visitor was an expert or a child. We had to fold in all the features and factors of an exhibition process and project into this short amount of time. And I was, I immediately looked to Agile and to UX as a way to distill a process down to quickly get at design visualizations, diagrams, and some scripting for the content all done all at one time. And I also didn't want them to have their brilliant idea for their project in week one and then come to find in week 18 that they, that, oh no, it wasn't going to work anymore because then they only had two weeks left. I needed them to know more clearly early on that the ideas that they were going to work with were going to work for them and that they were going to be able to graduate. <laughs> right. So there's some personal stake at hand there. And so the ability to do rapid ideation involving testing and prototyping of lots of ideas up front. While that might seem like a boatload of work up front, what it did is it allowed them then to be really creative throughout the rest of the semesters and be able to implement something that they had a little more assurance was going to work in the end. They had, they were doing something not because it was the only idea they had, but because it was the best idea that they had. So I want to ask about that. As you've been, we've been talking about Waterfall and we've been having this conversation, I've been thinking the best back of my mind, many questions, but one of them is the name that you've given to this process that you're working on right in front of us, Rapid Experience Design. I want to ask, in your mind, does that process suggest that the entire process of experience design can be done more quickly? You haven't said that's one of the outcomes, but it sounds to me like the word rapid there means Within the process, there's a shorter time frame between having an idea and finally testing it. In the traditional waterfall method, you have an idea, you're a student, you have your idea, it's like the old Academy de Beaux-Arts, you, okay. the person with the charrette, with the cart, sort of is wheeling it through the big main room and you have to throw your watercolor in there after the first 24 hours or you, you fail and you can't continue to do that project. I need to have the idea right up front. So in your academic world, the students would have the idea in week one only to find out perhaps in week 18 that it was no good. It sounds like rapid experience design is telescoping that, that, that time from week one to week 18 down to just, I don't know, a few hours or a few days. So you can more rapidly come up with an idea, test it, come up with an idea, test it, not necessarily know everything, not necessarily know the entire content, but make progress on all fronts more quickly instead of taking a lot of time on each step. Is that what rapid means in this case? A rapid bunch of quicker circles instead of one big long line. Exactly. It does. And it means front loading though that circular activity right up front in the process. As opposed to, like you say, one big circle where the circle concludes at the end of the project. Right. Um, so exactly. it's almost like rapid fire or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's just more moving more quickly. But th does that, just in terms of the feeling of this process for your students, does that mean that it's like, a faster paced project or more frenetic? Or is it just that you're taking the, the parts of the project that norm, normally would be separated by a single line, 
months or years apart, mm-hmm. and you're shortening that, simply shortening that line and turning it into a series of smaller circles, but it, it's not harder. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean you can't sleep for two years. It's just a different way of doing the process, but the process isn't any more like it, you're not making the process harder. You're making it kind of easier. Yeah. I. It's interesting. Okay. This is a new thought I haven't had before, but your question's giving me a good thing to think about. I think it mimics the energy. I'm a dancer also. I know you're a dancer too, right? Aren't yeah. You? That's another podcast entirely. Yeah. But I think a, a lot backlog of, of, we have a backlog. We have a podcast backlog <laughs> problem here. We do. But I think a lot about energy in our work and not in a woo kind of way, but like literally, like when do I have energy? When do I have mental and creative energy to do something? And I think about the arc of that energy in a project. For anybody who's starting something, you often have, you might have a lull because there's anxiety, right? So there's a little bit of avoidance that happens. And then you finally kick it into gear. You do start doing the work. There tends to be like a cluster of energy up front in that work. When you begin ideating, you tend to have a lot of really good ideas or a lot of crazy ideas, whatever, just a lot of ideas. And when you bring 10 people together, let's say an exhibition team, multiply it. You have an exponential number of amazing, interesting things to think about at the beginning. And I think it has been a disservice to waterfall a creative project like that, where you try to, you actually eliminate all of those bit, you silence all of those ideas in favor of quickly deciding on one and then making that happen throughout the rest of the process. So when you're asking about, is it harder or faster or longer? I think what it's doing is it allows to you to align and maybe be more, I don't like using the word efficient because it's a very corporate sounding word, but you are using the, you are efficiently using that creative energy up front to gen, to test and make use of all of those ideas up front rather than eliminating them right off the bat. It's not harder because you naturally have that energy exists. So I don't see that as being harder. Beginning. Another question I have, we in the office where I'm the managing partner, we also do web design, et cetera. So agile and UX are terms that or have been around our water cooler for since we started our office. Strangely enough, we're a mm-hmm. weird office that way. But well, I know from experience that even in an agile process, and you've got your Kanban board, and you've got your Scrum, mm-hmm. and you've got all that sort of stuff going on, at some point in the process between starting it from scratch to, let's say you're making a website or another digital product of some kind, purely digital, it has no physical ramification at all, at the end, you've done your gold master, or you've pushed out your alpha, and then finally you've done your launch and whatever it's been QA'd. And at the very end, it's something that's done. There's a difference between the beginning of that process where there's been no commitment of labor to, to, to actual product, which is different by nature than the end of it. So at the beginning, when it's blue sky, you can be saying, hey, what if this website were instead a potted plant? And people say, great idea, it's a potted plant. But if you've determined it is indeed a website or a digital print, we're going to make this digital thing, at a certain point, someone's going to start writing some code. Mm-hmm. And then that'll be assessed. And then someone will start writing some more code. And that'll be assessed. And although that's not tangible, it is there and it is a product people have made. And at some point, 
a day before you launch the thing, all of that incremental work has been done and you could try to rapidly iterate on that all you want to, but you're not going to be able to redo that entire body of work that you've been working on for months. So even in the agile situation, there's some waterfall somewhere. Yeah. Right. You can you do those rapid things. I just I love the idea of I think what you're advocating is get your hands dirty, get out your power tools, get out your anthropological thinking, get a bunch of people together, de-risk the thing and just start breaking some stuff and making giant models and testing them with people and showing them to your family as early as humanly possible so that you get more good ideas out there that you test instead of spending all your time talking and not testing and only having one good idea that you don't know whether it works till the end of the 18 months. But a long-winded way of saying, isn't even in your process, isn't isn't there some waterfall somewhere towards the end? Yeah, there is. So that's a very good point. And I think, so if only I could show charts to you right now, but <laughs> the way I have the rapid experience design documented out is if you imagine the first phase is lots of circles, right? So the first phase is that rapid ideation phase and that going, well, it's like agile, going whole early and often is the principle, right? Make whole ideas, envision them in whole senses, test them, be able to see the whole thing. Lots of that up front. For each of these phases, I have a mindset assigned to it. And you already just said it. The mindset of that first phase is what if. So the what if mindset allows you to do that expansive thinking, that divergent convergent, right? So where that's the divergent phase. As you then move to the next phase, I, we don't, this is going to get much longer, but there are mindsets that assign to each of the phases. And as you go down much further in the line of work towards the completion Naturally, you have to become a bit waterfall because you move from creative ideation into production and documentation. Documentation is not, does not need to be agile in that way, unless you need to test the documentation, adjust it and come back. But a lot of times for exhibition development, the need to be testing certain case design that should have happened in the earlier phases. If you're actually drawing it to be built, at that point, you should know that it is. So I do think at that point, there, we are much more in a waterfall mode because it's just steps of implementation instead of the creative ideation that's happening earlier. Got it. Okay. So at the very beginning, the process is very different, but at the very end, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, there's still a ribbon and you still cut it. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. So now if you, the only difference would be the, your, you are in the process planning for the after experience. I think that's another thing that from the service design aspect of it, you do conclude with a cutting of the ribbon, but really you haven't concluded because you also are folding in an assessment later in mm-hmm. older museum language. That would be summative evaluation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, the way I think of it now is being able to circle back to see what the outcomes are later. It is summative evaluation, essentially. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So point number six is the meta point. Mm-hmm. It's like the experience about experience about experience, but it's a good one. Point number six, changing established processes like you're doing teaches you about change itself. You were saying before that 
change is hard. Having people switch to this new process is hard. People yeah. fear it or they're just used to something else. What have you learned about making change itself? Yeah, so this is where I'm actually grateful I'm doing a PhD in this because being doing a PhD allows this to get both really small and really big at the same time. So it asks me to focus really tightly on one thing, but in the context of something much bigger. And what I've realized the much bigger thing is really a more systemic issue around what it means to change a process and what it means to bring change into the museum field or a museum design field. And I will, so part of my need to be critical and do a critical analysis on this work includes looking at where things have been hard and where things haven't been successful. And I will say that the hardest part of all of this has been in coming to terms with the fact that many people resist change. <laughs> and so I'm talking about a, a practical model of work that I would like to fold into real exhibition processes. And um, it's very hard to do this hypothetically. So I need to put this on real projects. And um, I would say that it, I have learned through this process that I need to be very careful and delicate about how I bring change to people, how I ask people to do something new. And that is actually one of the reasons why I started getting really interested in adventure education. Um, I'm also doing deeper dive into ethics, something called translational ethics, which it didn't prep you on that one either, but, but looking really at what it means to ask people to do something that is new to them. And adventure education has they are asking people to do things where people think their, their lives are at risk. And I wouldn't say that doing a new process on exhibition development and design puts people's lives at risk, but I will say that fear and anxiety is fear and anxiety. And that can, that is very powerful. And it is also the enemy of creativity. And so I think when people are in a fearful mindset or they are worried that their ideas will be shot down, worried that they're working with people in a way they're not comfortable with. Um, it, it does the thing that I try so hard to not have happen in my work, which is it dismantles creativity. It breaks the fragile egg that is the thing that is creativity. So I do a lot of work now. My research now is thinking a lot about change and how behavioral psychology and social and organizational change and what what is needed in the context of that to make a new process work and make a new process safe for people to use. Um, wow, it sounds like you are indeed a reflective practitioner. <laughs> as we were talking about at the beginning. This is this has been really great. There's so much news that I feel like I can use. I can if our dear listeners feeling the same way, they've just gotten a lot out of it too. Uh, let me do a quick Recap. This was our list for today. We've been introducing rapid experience design with Claire Brown and our talking points. One, the usual approach to exhibition design waterfall isn't the only way. Two, we can combine approaches from outside the exhibition world to make something new. Three, focus on creating experiences first, spatial arrangements later. Four, this new approach can de risk a project. Five, this whole process was inspired by teaching fast courses. And six, 
changing established processes teaches you about change itself. How did I do? That sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like we got so we got something there. Okay. We do. That's, that's good. I'm I'm glad because we're I'm forcing you to like I said, work on your PhD in, in public here. So, uh, Claire, it has been great to have you on the show talking about this. Thank you, Jonathan. It's so great to talk this out. It's exactly what I need to do. And I would say if anybody wants to reach out to me or has comments for you with the podcast, um, I'm happy to share some practical examples of this. I know we talked a bit theoretically in this conversation, mm-hmm. um, but I've got a lot of real-world practical examples. That I- How do they get in touch with you? How would you like them to... If they Email, website, LinkedIn. What's the absolutely? Best way? You can. I would suggest the best way is to message me on LinkedIn. Plus, then we get to be contacts, professional friends. So it's Claire Brown, C L A R E. No, it's no I in it. Brown, and that would be a great way to connect with me. Thank you. Perfect. We'll get your coordinates in the show notes as well. It will live on forever. <laughs> All right. Great to have you. Okay, I think we covered it. Thank you, dear listener, for your time. In exchange, I hope this episode gave you some news you can use. If you would like to get in touch with me or have an idea for this show, go to makingthemuseum.com and hit contact. You can find me on LinkedIn too, under Jonathan Alger, A-L-G-E-R, or at the website of my firm, C&G Partners. By the way, this podcast has an older sister, a one-minute newsletter under the same name, One Quick Insight. Each time for museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience professionals, Subscribe at makingthemuseum.com, big subscribe button in the menu at the top. Meanwhile, I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.